You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. I always think so much of the issue that people have with like death and change and the unknown is they're like, I don't want to let this thing go. Like, I don't know who I am without it. I don't know who we are without it and blah, 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 blah. And so what happens is like they try to close themselves off to what I see as an opportunity to become. If there's one thing that's for sure, it's that you, your brand, and the humans that are a part of it will evolve over time. So how do you honor the life and death cycles that come with change and still continue to show up? You're listening to Flaunt Your Fire. I'm your host, India Jackson, and today I'm recording on the stolen land of my brother's ancestors, the Piscataway people. This land is also known as the state of Maryland, United States. And today I'm going to be joined by my guest, Brianna Nunn for a conversation held live inside my online home, the Pause on the Play community, where you can ask questions for me to explore and share your thoughts in the chat as an exclusive benefit for paid subscribers. You can learn more about the community by visiting pauseontheplay.com. My guest, Brianna Nunn, is a self-described multidimensional misfit who is a student, practitioner, and facilitator of collective liberation. She uses her legal background to teach legalese to everyday people who want to feel more confident making decisions in their work and business. She's also a well-being educator, teaching people how to submit to and align with change. I can't wait to dig into this conversation with her, so let's get it started. Content note, this episode includes mentions of death and trauma. Well, I'm glad to have you here today and to be able to chat with you and dig into some curiosities I have about what you've been up to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's definitely do that. Part of how we began chatting is that you had a part of your business where you are working as a death dominatrix. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind sharing what that mean, meant for you at the time and catch us up to what that means for you now? <laughs> yeah, it, it means the same then as it does now, which is what you read in my bio, which is teaching people how to submit to change and submit to death cycles. So in my 
I guess, philosophy of life, you could call it. Every time we experience a change, we experience a death. So what was no longer is. And so we have to align with what our new reality is. And that work, which is continuing just in a different way, for me, it's growing and evolving, um, is really about the way my brain perceives things. I'm 100% a squiggly brain person, and my brain's superpower is to really see where things intersect. So whereas, you know, our society is set up and people are taught to think of like focusing on one thing at a time, I've always been a person that's like, that feels stupid to me because look at where these six things intersect. Like that's like where the meat is. Like we can't just pull one string. We have to look at where they intersect and pull strings at that intersection point. Um, And a lot of the death dominatrix work is about seeing those intersections for like my individual clients, but then also calling it out where I see the intersections in our collective society of things that are changing or that need to change or that we're resisting, what have you. Yeah. And I know um, I can only imagine that that type of work requires a certain amount of labor, like Mm -hmm. beyond the thinking labor. Could you speak to that a bit? Well, tell me more about what you mean when you say labor, like beyond just thinking. Do you mean like working with people? What do you mean? Yeah, I'm leaning towards working with people, but also like holding space for all the emotions that can come up when we're recognizing we're in a death cycle and then transitioning into rebirth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, it can be really laborious. I mean, I think one of the things that I had to get really clear about at the outset of my entrepreneurship journey is my work is not for beginners, right? So I don't advertise working with clients one-on-one at all. Um, Any one-on-one clients I have are people who approach me about one-on-one work. And I have in my intake um, survey, I ask them, like, have you worked with processors before? Have you worked with a coach? Have you worked with a therapist? Tell me what that was like. What were you working on? Um, because I need to understand my my work's pretty deep. It's <laughs> it's deep. I am trained in somatics, and so I do a lot of body, like into the body work. And those types of shifts are only available to people who are at a certain point in their journey. And that's not to mean that other people are like behind or whatever. It just means I meet people at a very specific place in their journey in that work. Um, And that helps to cut down on some of the labor because they don't resist. Like by the time someone makes it to me and wants to like really have my attention focused on them, which is I'm told an intense thing to experience, Um, (laughs) they they're like ready to to hear those things. They're ready to hear the truth. They're ready for someone to kind of to like cut through their bullshit. Um, They're ready for like some pretty sharp cuts <laughs> um, of like, this is what you were doing and we're not doing that anymore. And here's why. So yeah, it, it can be laborious, but um, I have 
good boundaries on the front end that have made it such that I I maybe had one situation where I, I had to end the client relationship because it was so laborious. Um, but everyone else like has been essentially a dream client for me. I know you mentioned a moment ago about like how things can intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, and intersectionality is really important to my brand as well as pause and the play as a whole. And I just wonder, like, where have you found there has been intersections for you between kind of doing this death and rebirth work and the legal work that you do? Yeah. So there's a huge intersection. The background on my legal work is I did the um, deeply colonized, deeply oppressive law path or in my early days, like right out of law school. I worked at a big fancy law firm. I worked at, you know, then a midsize law firm. And then I worked in-house counsel at a startup, an electric car startup. I really got to see up close and personal what oppressive systems look like. And it just was not interesting to me. I knew within the first week of my time at my first law firm, I was like, I'm going to have to figure something else out because this is not a long-term thing. And so now what I do at The Everyday Lawyer, after leaving that world and being in the well-being entrepreneurship world and essentially like leaving law for a couple years, the reason I came back to it is because um, I've always felt like the legal industry just it's so colonized and it's so gatekept, like that information is really gatekept and it's just deeply, deeply lacking any sort of moral character or scaffolding, which is always ironic because we have these like ethical legal standards that you have to follow as a lawyer that are like so long, but at the end of the day, they don't really mean anything in terms of justice and being a good um, citizen in a collective, right? And so Everyday Lawyer is really about calling that out and educating people on the fact that like the reason that you don't understand this law stuff is not because you're stupid. It's because these systems have been created and this whole profession has been structured to make you feel stupid so that you feel like your only option is anytime the word law <laughs> shows up or the word legal shows up is that you have to hire someone to help you. And you have to pay that person an exorbitant amount of money to do something that could possibly be quite simple, that you could actually just do on your own. And so a lot of my work is, and the intersection between it is like teaching people, first of all, that like this response that you have to the word law, to the word legal, anything in that world is like, it's like a trained trauma response. And so let's start, like, I actually do nervous system education in one of my sessions where I, like, teach people what's going on and how it's been set up, like, how you've been set up to be triggered and how your system has been trained to be triggered by things that are legal and law-related. And so what do you have to do? How do you actually soothe and regulate your nervous system? Because part of having the knowledge and being able to do for yourself in the legal world is um, 
being able to have access to your executive function. And when you're in a trauma or stress response, your executive function is significantly limited, which is why you can't like see or think straight and you're like panicking and crying and on Google, you know, depending on whether you're a a fight, flight or freezer. So this is a really long answer, but it's that's the intersection, right? Is that like this whole industry, I think, needs to die and needs to be reshaped. And so as the everyday lawyer, what I'm doing is I I am working, working slowly at helping it die and talking about possibilities for what it could look like that are more ethical, right? And so my personal mission is to create universal legally fluency because the first step is knowledge. And just like we all learned certain things in primary school, we should have been taught legalese. Everybody should have been taught legalese because our entire society runs on this thing we call the law. It's literally everywhere. And with that comes an expectation. There's all these standards in law that are like, you know, reasonable person standards. Would a reasonable person have understood the meaning of this law and known that they could or shouldn't have done this thing or that? And it's not just in business, which is my primary focus, um, but it's also, you know, in criminal law, in civil law, like would a reasonable person have understood? Well, if a reasonable per- reasonable person hasn't been taught to understand and comprehend legal speak, then the answer is fucking no. And the answer is always no, because we don't teach those things. And so that's like a fundamental flaw in the whole premise of what we're calling our legal system. The reasonable person doesn't understand legalese. So we can't judge or make judgments or make decisions about what a reasonable person would or would not be doing or would or would not understand without actually teaching them first. So it's a very hypocritical system, which is why I left it for so long. But, you know, it's nice to be back to it on my own terms and in a way that feels really just and really aligned um, with my values. Yeah. As you talk about like a reasonable person, I even think, how are we deciding what a reasonable person is? Who gets to decide that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and the reasonable person standard doesn't make sense anywhere. Oh, and I just wonder, you know, if there's parallels between how you're breaking down like the challenges of the legal world and the fact that it it literally has its own language that you now have to learn to understand any documents or agreements. And the way that some people's nervous systems may respond to the financial system of stocks and IRAs and retirement. And I just wonder if there's some parallels there. (laughs) Yeah, I think that there's a lot of parallels, right? Like people really, really shut down. I remember one of the things that I experienced when I was still like in big law and, you know, I was making more money than my parents and I had no idea how to manage it. But it was also terrifying because I grew up in a household where like coupon cutting was a very real and serious thing that we did every week when I was a kid. (laughs) Like if you want the Fruit Loops, you need to find the coupons to get them to the price that Fruit Loops become affordable in this household. And I didn't know anything about like stocks or investing or anything like that. And um, I was really, really lost. And it really, really 
triggered the crap out of me, like that I didn't know and didn't have that education. A totally different view of the financial system now and like <laughs> what it means to like prepare for retirement. But that's like a separate conversation. But I think the parallel is correct. Yeah. I mean, and even thinking how that expands even to like bookkeeping for business owners and accounting mm-hmm. and taxes. <laughs> There's so many systems that as you begin to think about, you know, how you're approaching things from like a death cycle could benefit from some revamping. Yes. I mean, that's what happens when we're in societal collapse, right? (laughs) The things that were cracks maybe 15, 20, even 30 years ago are now irreparable fissures. And what I encounter now, even from, you know, my own parents is that people wish the fissures were cracks. They're like willing the fissures to be cracks. And For me and what I teach in death cycles, you know, that's like the first stage of a death cycle. It's like the first stage of grief is denial. You also talk about um, death being like an initiator. Could you share what you mean by that? It's an initiator in the sense that it's initiating a beginning, like a new beginning. Um, And so I always think so much of the issue of that people have with like death and change and the unknown is they're like, I don't want to let this thing go. Like, I don't know who I am without it. I don't know who we are without it and blah, 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 blah. And so what happens is like they try to close themselves off to what I see as an opportunity to become, right? To become, to evolve and to mold and shape into something, you know, maybe not better, but certainly newer, potentially freer. And so starting to think about death as something that brings opportunity as opposed to something that um, is ending what is comfortable, but we conflate as safety, right? So A lot of work that I do with people initially when they're like in that resistance denial stage is like, yes, you've experienced this change and you're clinging to your past out of comfort. It has nothing to do with safety because a lot of times you can be comfort and your nervous system can be going crazy, but like you're comfortable with your nervous system going crazy And so you stay there because you know that and you know how to navigate it and you're comfortable there, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're safe. So I do a lot of like, what is your nervous system telling you? Is it saying it feels unsafe and you're comfortable with feeling unsafe? Okay, that's a piece of information and it's an important piece of information. And so is this new thing that we're talking about, this change that you're experiencing and this death you're experiencing, is it initiating a version of your life where your nervous system is communicating to you more regularly that you're actually safe? And if that's the case, should we not explore that? Because that's a healthier way of living for you, mind, body, soul, like any way you want to slice it. Oh, there's so much to that. Um, yeah. And then like, how do you even begin? As I think about like a lot of the Thought Your Fire audience and how 
they're wanting to be more visible um, and put themselves out there more. It's like, how does somebody begin to tease apart what is a lack of safety in their nervous system versus being on a growth edge and doing something that they're not as comfortable with because maybe they haven't done it before or done it consistently. Yeah. So I'm in the middle of mapping this process out, actually. And I'm going to offer it as like a a free workshop because I think it's really important. Um, but a lot of that manifests is my my favorite feeling to focus on and to get curious about has got to be overwhelm. Maybe a close second is fear. But overwhelm is interesting because it can hold like a lot of different emotions inside of it and it can be quite complex. And so I've been working on a process for, you know, how to work with overwhelm, which I think speaks to what you're talking about, this like nervous system, like is it a growth edge or are you getting a signal about safety versus comfort? As opposed to, you know, when you're overwhelmed, the the generic advice is like meditate, like go take a break, go outside, take a nap, like take a bath, get a massage. No, like let's get into the weeds of the overwhelm. Let's write down all the things that you find overwhelming and then let's ask questions about them. Why? Why are they overwhelming? Is there anything exciting about it and what? Is there any hesitation around it and why? And then what's cool as I've been mapping out this process and doing it for myself is you start to see some fun little categories (laughs) and themes pop up, right? So I can share mine. I had a category where it was like money was one of the things that was having me hesitate. Uh, Emotional hangups. Like I had some kind of emotional charge around the whole idea of that thing that I'd been carrying that was overwhelming me that I need to investigate. Time management. I was either procrastinating or not starting it because it felt like I just had no time to do it. And then lack of information. I didn't know how. I didn't know where to start. But I got a whole lot of information out of that where I was like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the emotional hangups, how do I want to deal with those? Do, do I think my routine like weekly tapping session is enough? Do I need to maybe consider going back to therapy? Like, what does that look like? How am I going to work through these emotional hangups? Lack of resources. Where do I start to get information? Can I ask people? Can I do some research online? Is there a course? Is there something else? Money. What am I missing in my budget? Like, can I stretch my budget to make this work? Or do I literally have to bring in more money? And if if so, how am I going to do that? Time management. Like, what are things that I am clearly procrastinating on that if I just sat down and did it, I could, like, do it? And then overall, like, How's my schedule working and what do I need to change about how it's working to make it feel like more of these things are feasible? And it really it really shifts. There's so much rich stuff in overwhelm 
that will tell you exactly where you are and exactly what's going on and where you need to make shifts. But I think sometimes, so often with overwhelm, we want to dissociate or like the way we deal with it doesn't really dig deep into the problem. Maybe it soothes it for a little bit, but we miss out on the information and the wisdom that's really there to like help us choose something different and more nourishing for ourselves. Mm. I really appreciate you sharing those examples. They're super helpful and insightful as well. As you share that, it makes me think about something that I discovered actually for myself um, (laughs) within the last year that showing up for me became something that started to feel really uncomfortable And I didn't know um, if the overwhelm in doing that at times of like feeling like I'm on this webinar or leading this workshop, um, I'm having like this dissociation in my body and I'm going somewhere else or my nervous system's overwhelmed and I'm sweaty. (laughs) Like, where is that coming from? And as I began to investigate it, I found some really interesting, but also seemingly simple things underneath that that um, for me, like having the ring light that I invested in, so I have this beautiful lighting in my videos, was actually like overstimulating me. Mm. And that something as simple as, you know, making sure that if I'm noticing that I've had it on too long, I turn the light down or just allow myself to compromise on lighting and have it off, completely began to shift things and showing up. And so I really like the examples that you gave because sometimes it can be complex, but also sometimes making some shifts to not feel as overwhelmed can be as simple as turning a light off mm-hmm. or in your case, looking into a course about something. Yeah. Yeah. I like, right. We can overcomplicate things or undercomplicate things, but we can never just complicate them. <laughs> <laughs> Like complexity doesn't have, you know, right? It's like you're either, you're never quite on the mark with complexity. And I think um, having something like tactile where you break it down, like uh, the way I'm structuring this workshop is the exact process that I used for myself. And I used construction paper and I cut it into index cards. And I wrote with like different colored markers and I had use different color construction paper for different categories of things that were overwhelming me so I could make it more like an arts and crafts project in the sense of like taking down the like I'm overcomplicating it, trying to like (laughs) find that middle ground of like, well, if I make it into something that's about play as opposed to I'm like, oh, there's something like deeply wrong with me and like I can't get and like going down that like story spiral that truly has no bottom like it really never bottoms out does it like if I could make it about play suddenly like it was more interactive and it was easier for me to stay there because I would be like oh like what color do I want the emotional hang-ups to be pink okay (laughs) (laughs) just like make more fun of yourself and it makes it easier to like be with the reality And when I'm doing that death dominatrix work, which honestly is like the death dominatrix work is like it might as well be my archetype. It's with me whether I'm naming it as that or not. 
it's always it's like auto on in the background and I don't there is no off switch right but like the first step of that work is being clear about what is true like what is the reality and what's in front of you not the story like what's the reality and the story sometimes is part of the reality but we have to like put the different truths down in front of us and see which ones are resonating, which ones are helping, which ones are harming. So then we know how to take appropriate action. And I think that's what I meant earlier by saying, like, I can't I can't work with beginners because beginners have a hard time with truth unless, you know, they there are extraordinary people who are like totally fine with it. But a lot of beginners struggle with truth. And like really getting to the truth of things, it's not a practice that we have because capitalism like runs on lies, (laughs) on lies and illusions. And so when people are starting their self-discovery journey or their their liberation journey, a lot of what they're starting with is like how to stop lying. That's such a powerful way to put that. And at the same time, in addition to those pieces, it's also like the system is structured in a way to, in my opinion, cause people to blame themselves for what's happening Mm -hmm. and not zoom out and say, what is the system that got me here? What are the things that contributed as well? Yes. Which is its own lie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Have you found that there's any like connection between teaching people legalese and what you call death hygiene? Yes, there is. Because, um, oh, wait a minute. We should probably discuss what is death hygiene for those that don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I was like, uh, let me think about that. Um, death hygiene. How am I feeling like describing that today? Death hygiene is like, it's how you metabolize change. And the way I think about metabolizing change is uh, you do that through your physicality, your spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical health. And those are all components of your physicality. And they're all parts of like your death hygiene. So what I tend to find is people have a connection, a strong connection to one, maybe two of those things, but they don't have like a clear connection to all four. And part of your death hygiene is to be able to cultivate a clear connection and relationship to all four parts of your physicality. So people will be really good. Like, for example, before I was doing any of this or, you know, was a person who would not look at my current self like sideways and be like the hell is she talking about my only connection to my physicality was my physical body and so if there was the only way I would know something really was off with me or that I I needed to adjust something or pay attention to what's going on is if I was getting physical bodily symptoms you know something like an injury or something happening with my digestion or like maybe my skin or something like that but and like even that was like mm, maybe but the signals for me at the time were really coming in my mental and emotional health 
but I didn't know how to connect to those. I didn't know what to do with them or how to pay attention to them. But those were the signals were coming from there. Like my body was basically fine. You know, I was doing my six days a week working out, like eating, you know, really super healthy or whatever I thought that was. Um, but my mental and emotional health were in like screaming. I was an insomniac. I couldn't sleep through the night. I had night terrors and it never occurred to me, <laughs> you know, that like that might be a thing. Like I was having these crazy dreams and night terrors and I by the time it occurred to me and I had a friend say like, hey, maybe you should see a therapist if that's what's going on. I happened to bring it up in conversation over dinner. I was like, oh, I'm just so tired. Sorry. Like I haven't slept through the night in two months. And they were like, why? And I was like, well, I wake up with these horrible nightmares and then I like can't go back to sleep. And they were like, so yeah, that's like a mental thing for sure. Maybe <laughs> therapy hadn't even crossed my mind. And I had been a person who had gone to therapy in my 20s, but it, I had forgotten that therapy even existed because I was so far gone. And so when I think about death hygiene, I think about like, where is what's your weakest connection and how can you how can you cultivate it if it feels non-existent how can you create it if it feels really weak how can you strengthen it so that at any time you're always able to check in on your mental emotional physical and spiritual health at any given time and you can identify what's going on with those things without a whole lot of effort and I love that. Um, and I think that that even goes into some of what I've witnessed as people do like rebrands and things like that, because mm -hmm. you're often in a death cycle of the previous brand as you're birthing the new one. And a lot can come up emotionally in that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's very true. A lot of that like is its own grief cycle. I just finished my group program, Rebirth Your Business, a couple of months ago. And it was all people who are either trying to expand their current business or pivoted in some way. And there was just a lot of grief. It was a lot of grief. And it was less about like, you know, what are these like business things that you're going to tick off? Whenever I say that, I like start to chuckle because I'm like, Somewhere someone has like a list of KPIs and I still don't understand what that term means um, or how you apply <laughs> it to your business. <laughs> um, but we didn't do any of that. Like, I don't know how to teach any of that stuff. Like, never have, never will probably. Uh, but I can teach you how to work through like the, the toll on your physicality that is trying to rebirth your business and so that's what we did and we talked about like the real real stuff the behind the scenes stuff that never makes it into the conversation over the dinner table let alone what you're putting out into the world like on maybe your social media <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love that because coming from the design world so often you know rebranding or branding a business for the first time um, is a normal part of the conversation, selecting colors, fonts, website design ideas, you name it. And yet 
somehow it is not a normal part of that conversation, especially I think it's needed during a rebrand to discuss mental health support or a facilitator to help guide you through, you know, this internal process of releasing what was and your ideas of what it needed to be or should be based on the industry that you're in, in order to create something new or revamped. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much that happens there. I'm curious to know from you, what are some of the things that you've witnessed people experience through your rebirth, your business process? I think what was really interesting, and I think I've shared this with you before, I created that program as much for me as I did for people who are feeling like I was. And I created it as an accountability program for myself. So I was like, this is what I'm experiencing. If you're experiencing, I'm doing a group program on it. And the accountability for me was like, people are showing up every week, depending on me for guidance on this. So I have to keep going through this thing that feels really hard to me so that I know what the next step is so I can lead this program. (laughs) Um, And for me personally, and what I think a few other people were feeling was like, really feeling backed into a corner by their existing brand. Like really feeling backed into a corner and constricted and like they couldn't expand and like be, you know, their full self. So that's why I say like I came up with that phrase multidimensional misfit while I was leading that program because what it was is like it's very easy in entrepreneurship. You know, we talk about entrepreneurship as a potential path for increased liberation But it's also very easy to like let it take you into like a path of capitalism and getting stuck there. And, you know, when I say a path, I mean like many paths. There's so many ways that entrepreneurship can take you like right back to the plantation. And so one of those ways is right specializing. In capitalism, we're supposed to specialize, we're supposed to have one skill, and someone else has the other skill, and once we do our skill, then we pass it off to the person with the other skill, and blah, 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 blah. And that specialization thing has bled over into entrepreneurship for sure, where it's like, if you're going to be unique, like you have to have a unique take, and you have to have a unique perspective, and you have to specialize and like own your corner of the internet, and you know, all the things that people are saying. And you can get so lost in that trying to be unique in a sea of so many people talking that you can really box yourself in. And then when you find yourself curious or wanting to explore these other things or even to like do your same work, but like on a bigger level, which was what some of my clients were experiencing, like I want to continue this work, but I want to do it bigger Or I want to now be visible in this platform over here and not just there, right? It feels constricting. It feels like you can't get out of that box. And if you leave that box, then everything you worked for falls away and like you lose it completely. And so that was, I think, at its core, like the biggest lie that we were collectively dealing with in that program And it looked a little bit different for everyone, but that's what it was really about was like, if I leave this thing or try to do this thing differently, or if I go pursue that dream that seems to have nothing to do 
with this box that I put myself in over here, what's going to happen? Am I going to destroy everything that I've been working for? It doesn't mean I've been wasting all of my time. Like what's going to happen now? Yeah. I wonder if there's even like a releasing of blame, shame, or something there with even having to acknowledge that what was influenced by potentially outside sources of our culture here in America and online business, when you create a business, you're creating it. So you made the box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you have to confront the fact that like you made the box. And for me personally, like, you know, death dominatrix is like, it's not a subtle box. (laughs) It's pretty confronting and it's pretty intense. And I was like, oh my God, is this where I'm going to like put myself that I'm only ever going to be like confronting and intense and like trigger people. And that's not what, you know, like my work when I'm working with people in programs and, and individuals, like people will say my work is actually really gentle. It's really compassionate and it's a non-judgment space, but like death dominatrix is super confronting and it's like it just is harsh and whatever uh and it makes people feel a certain way and i was i really was having trouble i was like man i really put myself here <laughs> like i created this and now i'm here and like there's other stuff i want to do that maybe doesn't have like um this like triggering connotation to it And I don't know what to do. I don't know where to put that because I've created this box and now it feels more like a cage. And so what do do I do? Yeah. And I mean, also recognizing when we zoom out and review like what's out there to purchase when it comes to how to start your business or Mm -hmm. marketing 101, it's all telling you to niche down and make a box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and not just a box for you, but also or how you run your business or what way you structure your offers. But then there's like a standardized idea of like what brands should look like, the colors that you pick, the what fonts are hot right now. <laughs> yeah. And then there's like the additional piece of you have to like narrow in or zone in on your target client and hit the mm-hmm. target. So you're also like putting a box around or at least encouraged to who you work with. Mm-hmm. It literally shifts everything. And what I've started to see is like how much it closes you off to opportunities because there are people like people I never in a million years would have thought like, oh, this is a person I should have a conversation with that I've had conversations with. And we've had really interesting things come out of that. But because those are the things that were taught and this is how you're supposed to, quote unquote, do these things and, you know, have an ideal client avatar and all of those <laughs> little like mechanical tools that they tell you. Yeah, you find yourself, yeah, you certainly have a corner of the internet and you're in a box, but it can be lonely as hell. It's isolating. Yeah, I feel like 
almost like it's like building an entrepreneurial prison for ourselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, maybe my design the next time I'm going to do rebirth your business is like a jail, a jailbreak image of some kind. <laughs> Because that's really what it felt like was like busting myself and a bunch of other people out of entrepreneurship jail. And I wonder, you know, as someone who doesn't come from like coaching or like emotional based work, um, if there's even some like mental health implications to that and like ignoring our own intuition in order to get into these boxes and follow this advice, mm-hmm. just something about like, the isolation and making ourselves like very unilateral and one dimensional feels totally against human nature. Yeah, it's completely against human nature. Like, and I think the place where you really see it, or I really saw it, I don't see it as much now. Like, I think that teenagers now, like, I just love this generation. They're my favorite. They're just not buying it right they're just not picking up what we're putting down and they're calling bullshit on the whole thing and it's like my favorite it's my favorite they make everybody so mad and I'm like if you would get over your own bullshit and listen to what they're saying all that they're saying is the different ways that um we're in late stage capitalism and the system that has been failing the whole time is like really really failing now they're saying there's no cho- there is no good choice and there are no more good choices that's what they're teaching us but the kids who are about i think same generation or maybe at the very end of millennials that are about 10 years older 8 to 10 years older than them i specifically have memories of that age group having zero hobbies none i did interviews for my college um, admission interviews, like alumni admission interviews. And every single, I interviewed probably, I don't know, 50 to 70 kids over like a several year period. One person had hobbies. I asked every single time I said, what is your hobby? And they looked at me like I was insane. Wow. And like, that was how far we had taken it. Right. Cause that's kind of, I equate them with like the tail end of people that were like really trying it out. They were like, I don't know about this, but I'm going to go all in guns blazing and just see if it works. And like that level of commitment meant that like they were so bought into being that one dimensional and specialized or whatever we're told to be that they literally could not answer the question, what do you do for your own personal enjoyment? And they were 17. Oh, my gosh. And I will never forget that span of two or three years in my life where I was doing those interviews where one person of 50 to 70 kids could tell me what they do for enjoyment. Children. It's just like (laughs) mind blowing of like, but humans need play and creativity and pleasure in order to be able to be innovative. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the only reason we should be doing that but what are we missing when we don't Mm -hmm. such a powerful conversation we're having and I know we could talk forever (laughs) so (laughs) you're definitely invited back anytime (laughs) yay 
Um, I know you also talk about, and we spent some time in death, but how death also allows us to explore life and life affirming decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that energy, I would love to know, like, what are you excited about? What are you looking forward to? I'm really excited, honestly, about um, collaborations, like business collaborations right now. I, this, this whole entrance back into law in the legal world for me has been really tough. I have like a lot of workplace trauma from (laughs) being a corporate lawyer that I've really had to work through to be able to like come back into this work, like in a place from a place that feels like really empowered and really life affirming. And one of the things that has been happening as a result of that is that I've been meeting like-minded people, whereas I before was feeling like everybody was staring at me like I had horns coming out of my head and maybe they're coming out of your head. (laughs) Not mine, by the way. Um, (laughs) But now I've been meeting people who are trying to have the same conversation I'm having. And what we're what it feels like we're doing is starting a movement to the point where I'm like, I literally had the a couple of weeks ago, like the thought I was like, I probably should start studying like how movements are built and like go through history lessons on that, because like, I don't know. I don't know what that's about, but it feels like that's what's happening and it feels really affirming and exciting um, to be meeting people who are also excited about these things and and outraged by our reality. Yeah, please keep me posted. <laughs> what you find <laughs> as you dig down the movement rabbit hole. <laughs> I totally definitely. Will. I feel like you're on to something big in a sense that it's it's so much bigger than just your brand. Yeah, yeah, it feels bigger than that. And one of the biggest shifts that I've really had to make and be okay with making is um, having death dominatrix, like I said earlier, be more of like an archetype, like a thing that I'm living every day, as opposed to something that's like I'm leading with out in the world. It's something that I'm like, working on understanding is a thing I need to stay true to. That's an archetype about the core of who I am as a person and what I stand for and what I believe in and how I see things in the world and perceive things in the world that makes it feel like these things that are bigger than my brand are possible because like death dominatrix thing is saying like this is where you have to go and like I trust that like more than anything um and so that was like being able to make that adjustment of being like this is a part of me that's like for me that guides me and not necessarily a part that I put out in the world as as a thing for people to like consume right like as a part of me that can guide other people I had to correct that for myself and understand like it's a thing that's guiding me 
it's not a thing that other people get to like pay for access to if that makes sense or like I like market for people to pay for access to yeah that's such a powerful thing to kind of tease out and Mm -hmm. to even begin to consider in a world where we're told everything that we have we're supposed to make available for sale to decide some things are for you and they're there as your foundation as your guide but you get to decide if you want to share it and how Yeah. So like the little pieces come out, like the little things on like overwhelm. People maybe ask me to work one-on-one and I consider it if I'm like in the right place and have the right time, space, and energy for that sort of thing. But it's not something I like am advertising anymore is like I'm selling this thing because I realized I was really selling this like really sacred part of myself and that was part of more than feeling like I was in a box like that was what was eating away of like something's not right here yeah such a powerful realization Mm -hmm. I know often on the show um, we will try to give people taking in this conversation one thing to do or consider so they're not procrastinating and binge listening, but not making any change in their life. Yeah. So bringing them into action. Um, do you feel called to any one thing that you would want someone to do today? I think um, I call people in to really examine their overwhelm. I really think that like, if you write down a list of all the things that you're overwhelmed about and just say why. There is so much information in that exercise. (laughs) There's so much information because everyone feels really overwhelmed right now because we're in this place where some people think we're, you know, hanging out and barely holding on to capitalism and others are aware that we're in a free fall. But regardless of what you're choosing to believe, the truth is, is that we're in a free fall. And being in a free fall where you can't see the ground and you have no idea if the ground's going to appear beneath your feet at some point is terrifying. And so, and that terror, I think collectively right now, manifests for people as overwhelm. And so the more we can dig into overwhelm, the more we're going to start to acknowledge there's terror the more we're going to be able to have a conversation of how do we find the ground and what should that ground be? Thank you so much, Brianna, for being here and for that powerful ask. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was so wonderful to be here. The Flaunt Your Fire podcast is brought to you by the wonderful brand I co-founded, Pause on the Play. You can learn more about Pause on the Play's community, workshops, and implicit to explicit workshop by visiting pauseontheplay.com. That's pauseontheplay.com. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business. 
it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?